0: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's say that together. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God reveals to us in this first chapter of the Bible that He, the eternally existent God, created the time-space mass continuum out of nothing. In stark contrast to the various evolutionary theories which have persisted in the minds of men since the dawn of written history, God tells us in precise terms that He created the world in six 24-hour days. So that all that we see in our universe owes its existence not to lower life forms plus infinite numbers of miraculous mutations and genetic adaptations multiplied by billions of years, but everything owes its life to God. On day one, God did not initiate a process. He spoke. In verses three through five, we learn that by the sheer power of his command, light was separated from darkness, with the result that time was marked by the daily rotation of an evening followed by a morning day one. On day two, verses six through eight of Genesis one, God again speaks. And at his command, the waters on the surface of the earth are separated from the probably invisible canopy above what we know now as Earth's atmosphere. On day three, verses nine through 13, God performed a twofold act of creation. Again, he does not initiate a process, but he speaks. And in consequence of his speech, dry land is separated out from the waters on the face of the earth. Then, God creates vegetation to cover the dry land, green plants and trees with seed in them so that all vegetation is genetically coded to self propagate within the ordained strictures of unique kinds. We then find in the text that days four through six mirror days one through three. Like a writer, God Refines the rough draft. God adds detail to the sculpture, the universe. Days one through three are the background to his creative painting. Days four through six are the colorful foreground. So, days one and four generally deal with time. Days two and five generally deal with space. And days three and six deal with earth and in perfect sync with the geocentricity, the earth centeredness of the Genesis account, days 3 and 6 have two creative acts. So it's a perfect mirror. On day 4, verses 14 through 19, God speaks, and thereby He creates the sun and the moon and the stars after, after creation of the earth and its vegetation. This is no evolutionary construct that we find here. On day five, verses twenty through twenty-three, God speaks, and the seas teem with an innumerable variety of creatures, big and small. Birds populate the sky before before any animals. We come then to day six, the crowning day of God's creative activity, and incredibly, on this crowning day, the focus is upon earth. Why, why the earth in this immense universe? Scientists tell us that in every direction from our little planet, stars can be seen 15 billion light years away, and that's just the visible edge which we can see now, which keeps getting farther out every time we come up with a new telescope. What does that mean? It means absolutely nothing to me. I can't comprehend it. But I don't. If, if it can help you at all, I want to try for just a moment. It means that if you. Go to the stars at the furthest end of that end of the universe. To the stars in that direction. That you would go in miles. 18. 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 18 million dollars just has six zeros after it. It's a lot of money. 18 million dollars has six zeros. What I just said was 40 zeros. And I actually just said 44. 18 with 44 zeros. It's that many miles from that end of what we can see to that end of what we can see. I read of a university professor whose girlfriend left him because he kept thinking about this. <laughs> and all that space it's not just, I mean, it's not just one over there and one over there, but it's in every direction. It's round. And in all of that space, it's filled with stars, many of them hundreds of thousands of times larger than our planet. To illustrate, it's the only thing we can do. Imagine yourself in a helicopter. You're coming down onto the west coast. And you look down there over the cities, but you get closer as you come down lower in this helicopter and you see all of that sand, that beautiful sand on the west coast. As far as your eye can see in this helicopter this way, you see sand. And as far as you can see this way, you see sand until the it, it, earth just kind of curves and you lose sight. Keep that picture in mind of all that sand. As you come down lower, you begin to narrow your focus on one beach come down and the helicopter lands and you're looking at all those grains of sand that you have seen from way up above and now your feet are down on the sand. And you get down on the sand and you begin to dig with a shovel. And you go down 20 feet. First the sand's here and you keep digging and you keep digging and pretty soon you look way up about as high as our ceiling. And that's where the surface is. I know this is theoretical because by that time you'd be in water. (laughs) but we'll just pretend, okay, that it's just all dry sand all the way down that far. You look up through that hole 20 feet above, and you consider all of the sand at the level you're at, all of the distance that you saw when you were way above in the helicopter, and you bend down on your knees at the bottom of that hole, and you pick up one little tiny grain of sand, and you put it in your palm, and you look at it there. That's a piece of sand. Compared to all the grains of sand, twenty feet deep, as far as you could see from that helicopter, every grain of sand is a star in our universe. That one little grain of sand our Earth. And in this account, God brings together two days to focus on that one little grain of sand that we know is Earth. He chooses to reveal Himself, and I might add here that my illustration probably by far does not give really just to the size of our universe. We can't comprehend But what we do know is that God's attention in His revelation of Himself focuses upon earth. The incomprehensible number of stars only rate a passing mention, verse 16. And He created the stars. The emphasis is on the sun. What is the sun in our universe? Just another little grain of sand. Quite a bit bigger than our little grain of sand, but it's just a grain of sand in the palm of your hand in our analogy. But He talks about the sun and He talks about the moon because they relate to the earth. It's all geocentric. In the midst of this immense universe, God's written revelation of Himself as Creator focuses upon earth where someday He would come in bodily form. That great immensity. All God needed to do was speak. And it was there. But He chose in His his design. Become man and come and stand on that little grain of sand to redeem us from our sin, which in God's mind merits far more ink than the phenomenal stretches of outer space. And to that end, we come to this final climax on the creative week, day six, beginning in verse 24. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock. Creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals eat according to its kind. You notice there that God again speaks, and He says, let the land produce. It could be translated, let the earth bring forth, or let come out of the earth. And I hope to better understand it as I spend more time in chapter 2 and verse 19, Lord willing, in the future. But at this point, I'd say in a preliminary way with that caution, that it seems to me that the earth itself serves as the raw material and spontaneously heeds the verbal command of God to create the animals that come out of the earth. The living creatures is really, the Hebrew word nephesh just means soul, life. So we have here the idea of animals which breathe the air. Earth-walking animals that breathe. And we notice again, just like the trees and plants, that they are brought forth according to their kinds. There's a threefold division here. I believe it's all inclusive, certainly, though it does not match the taxonomy that we know the amphibians and the, the uh, uh, reptiles and the mammals and that kind of thing. It's not that kind of division. Uh, and, and the, author, uh, the uh, recipients of the book didn't have those categories. But there are these threefold, this threefold division of livestock, first of all, the King James uses the word cattle. Speaks of larger, domesticated, generally four-legged animals. Then secondly, creatures that move along the ground. I I would prefer a different translation there, but it's really creeping things. As the KJV brings out, Uh, creatures that move along the ground is kind of a a looser statement. It's just creeping things. I mean, every creature moves along the ground. But it's a a creeping thing, uh, possibly including insects. And then there's the uh, wild animals or the King James Beasts of the Earth. The Hebrew word there is a very general word, meaning just living things uh, on the Earth. So it may include dinosaurs, it may include a lot of things. We're not sure how this breaks down. But what we have here is the creation of terrestrial animals, in contrast to the aquatic and the area animals of Day 5. And we notice again evolutionary theory is grossly out of sync with Revelation. Revelation. We see nothing here of amphibian creatures becoming reptiles and then mammals and then eventually learning to fly. God created the birds before insects, amphibians, and reptiles. Certainly before animals. And though created on the same day, isn't it interesting that domesticated animals are listed first before the creeping things? And say that to say this, there is simply no indication in the text of any development from lower to higher life forms. I don't know how Moses could have written it any more clearly that that is not what he has in mind and that's not what God is revealing to him. It's not lower life form to higher life form. It's all life forms on the earth following all life forms in the air, the birds, and in the sea. In fact, we read that each of these classes of animals is created according to its kind the very key phrase that consistently flows through this first chapter. God created strict genetic boundaries, which have never been broken. There is, and the fossil record shows that there has always been carefully defined genetic boundaries ruling over the animal kingdom. That doesn't mean that there's no adaptation. It doesn't mean that that a species doesn't develop over time and become extinct or whatever. The uh, rabbit's uh, that, that live in the colder climates have smaller ears than the rabbits who live in the warmer climates uh, because of the cold. It's nippy on the ears if you got too long of ears in this climate up here. That's, that's, that's development, That that's uh, response to temperatures and those types of things. We're not saying that there's nothing like that. But what we're saying is that elephants are never going to mate with pigeons. It's just not going to work. But we're also saying that lions are not going to be able to mate with dogs, even though they both have teeth and claws and walk on four legs. The idea of evolution is absolutely incompatible with the biblical account of creation. Those who want to make the days of Genesis long periods of time say this because they want to maintain some degree that during those long periods of time, lower life forms develop into higher life forms. And that's really the only need that we have for the lengthy time frame that evolution demands. The Genesis 1 repeatedly denies this construct. God says, I created trees and plants and sea creatures and all animal life according to their kind. Fixed within their kinds, whatever that is. We don't particularly know. But He says, I've designed from the start distinct genetic boundaries for self-propagation, which nature never has and never will cross. On this point, Dave Hunt wisely observes that if evolution were true, it would have filled the fossil record with billions of intermediary creatures, yet not one of these missing links has been found. Imagine the debris of the millions of tiny increments over millions of years it must have taken to develop lungs from gills, wings from nothing, the stomach and digestive system, eyes, kidneys, the brain, the nervous system throughout the body, the bloodstream, sperm and ovum for mammals, the egg and its shell for birds and reptiles. Impossibility is compounded since each of these systems is incredibly complex and could not gradually involve, but must be fully functional to sustain life. For example, the bat sophisticated radar system. It's absolutely ludicrous. I mean, how many times does a bat have to run into a pole before they're all dead, you know, before that, that radar system? is made? Verse 24, God said. Verse 25 there, then follows, God made. So God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. It's a constant emphasis on kinds right from the start. And all the creatures that move along the ground, according to the kinds, and God saw that it was good. Good. You begin to imagine the pleasure of God. As he looked down as the creator and the designer of every televised nature show to come. And can you imagine sitting there watching this show on lions on PBS and they're showing all the way lions live and all these phenomenal things you never knew about lions and they get the camera you know in the den and all that kind of thing. And it's just a phenomenal show. And on the end of the show, comes a scientist and says, I hope you enjoyed this evening. This was a great night for me because I made the lion. I mean, how absurd. Ridiculous. But God did make the lion. And he made every atom and every cell of the intricately connected, artistically diverse, omnisciently designed, incomprehensibly complex animal world. And God looked down on what he had made and he was deeply pleased. His were the planets and stars in the sky. His were the valleys and mountains so high. His were earth's riches in the sea and on the land. But God is not done. His crowning act of creation comes in Act 2 on day 6, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us make. There's a distinct emphasis here. In the text which precedes, God creates by speaking, but here His speech is that of deliberation. Let us make man. Chapter 2 will fill us in on the details, but suffice it to say here, there is a very unique involvement of God in His creative work of man. We find the plural there, let us make. Who's God talking to? There's many ideas, but I I don't think Moses had a full orb concept of of the Trinity, but in this very chapter, don't we get a sense of plurality? What does chapter 1 and verse 2 say? The Spirit of God hovers. The Spirit of God hovers. That's personality there, That there's something of a distinction in the way that is described. It's just God, but the Spirit of God. There may be some the seminal concept there, even within this chapter, that God speaks and deliberates And talks to himself. Says, let us make man in our image. Certainly on the basis of later revelation, we know that the Trinity is involved in creation. In John 1, John writes of Christ, the Word was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God. So we have the Spirit of God here, and we have in later revelation, Jesus and his part in creation. And So there's this deliberation. Let us make man in our image and likeness. What does that mean? to be made in the image and likeness of God, and again, uh, the ideas abound. Maybe we press them too far. It, but it certainly does include how we are distinct from the animal world. We have moral conscience the ability to think, and uh, to abstractly to write, and to, to read, and to plan, and to invent, and to comprehend beauty, and we have emotions that the animal world doesn't have. But I, it's not really emphasized here, and I don't know that that's me- meant to be the emphasis. The emphasis is that man is unique in all of creation. Made in the likeness of God, we bear His image. And that idea of image, as was present right here, as Moses writes, and throughout the Old Testament, the idea of image is a visible representation of an invisible reality. Now with the pagans, their reality wasn't reality. Gods aren't really there, Paul writes. But they're making these little idols, these little images, to represent what is, they believe, a reality that's invisible. That's what we are. We're God's representatives. We're in made in His likeness. In eternity past, the Father ordained that the Son would go to Earth in physical form. And as God ordained that before He ever created Adam, He had in His mind a physical body such as something like ours. So God, as God deliberates with Himself, He says, "Let us make man." in our likeness. Jesus, who was very God, was commissioned to come to earth to do the will of God. Think of that. This is before creation. Before the foundation of the world, it says that Jesus was crucified. In other words, in the deliberation within uh, the triunity of God, there was a knowledge that Jesus would take on physical form, what that form would look like, that he would come to earth, and that he would be uniquely designed to do the will of God. So, God deliberates again and says, let us make man in our image. So he makes him with a body. Now we note the parallel with the animal world. Everything made according to its kind, man made in the image of God. We see nothing of the concept that we have evolved from lower life forms. But the lower life forms are frozen within the confines of, of their kinds. Man then develops not from those lower life forms, but is created and made in the image of God. Another stricture around the idea of development. These are amazing words to say that man is made in the image of God. If you went back to ancient Egypt, where Moses was schooled in the university there in Egypt, he would have been taught that Pharaoh was in the image of God. Not the people who dug the canals. Not the guy who put the stones up to build the pyramids of the Pharaoh. Not them. They're not made in the image of God. Moses writes that man is made in the image of God. Through revelation, God reveals to us, in a sense, that we are royal. He uses royal language here to describe simply man. In God's eyes, all of mankind is royal. And verse 26b then is really a practical application of the first part of verse 26. Notice 26 again. God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Here's the practical application. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So man is to function as God's vice regent, exercising rule over every living thing that's swimming in the ocean, flying in the air, or moving on the land. Man is given that responsibility and that privilege. And we notice further in verse 27, as God follows through on His will, verse 27, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Male and female. It says to us that God created man with sexual distinctiveness. He created man, singular, as male, in distinction from female. He created them. There's a plurality there. You hear the faint echoes? God separated what? Day one, light from darkness. Day two, God separated what? The waters below from the waters above. There's a separation. And now here as we come, and then the third day as well, right? There's the separation of the land from, from the water, on the earth. And now in the sixth day, which mirrors the third day, we see again a separation. Man is made a separation, a distinctiveness, male and female. So again, we see God ordering His creation and designing it an order and a design which our world is desperately seeking to dismantle. Consider the words of one theologian who said, God, and he just says it so well, I just want to read it to you. God has created men and women to be different because he has different purposes for them. The character of the sexes is not a chance result of blind evolutionary processes, but the product of a consciously planned creative act of God. Everything God calls into existence, including human sexuality, springs from a profound divine task of releasing God's creative purpose and thereby glorifying Him. That means, thankfully, accepting their sexuality and consciously developing it in accordance with God's will. Each person is called to a life consonant with their creation. When someone rails against God's creation, he destroys himself. I know there's a number of you young people that are in contexts where the word homophobia is used. That is to say that if Anybody says that a man having sex with a man or a woman having sex with a woman is good and okay and you shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, If you are, there's something wrong with you. You might be hearing this in school or some other place. Let me just address that for a moment from what we see here. God created them male and female. When it comes to those who follow a homosexual style, we are not That word homophobia, homo, pointing to the homosexual and phobias, means fear. We're not afraid. No fear at all of such individuals. Nor do we hate such individuals at all. There's no fear. There's no hatred in it. The point is not that. The point is that God has designed man as male and female. He has designed sexuality to celebrate the beauty of his creative distinctiveness. We don't hate such people. We're not afraid of such people because they're different than us. We disapprove of such activity because it violates God's design and therefore does not glorify him as the creator. It's like somebody that painted a beautiful picture And someone comes into your house and takes that picture down and puts it on the ground and starts jumping up and down on top of it. And you say, wait, hold it! What are you doing? That's not... The artist didn't create this as a format. The artist created this as a picture to be on the wall and to look at and be beautiful. That's all we're saying. God designed His world. And we want to glorify and honor the Creator of this world. So homosexuality is a God-denying practice. It breaks down the distinctiveness. It says to this male-female distinction, we don't want it. We don't like it. Therefore, it is, as with every sin, dangerous. Please understand there too, it's not just a concern over the danger of such a lifestyle. That's not our only concern. I mean, that certainly ought to be a concern much more than it is. But the danger of it comes because we violated the design that God put into his world. So he created male and female, and we want to honor that creation. God then, in verse 28, blesses them. We find a two-pronged blessing to man. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. First of all, the blessing of procreation fill the earth, secondly, the blessing of stewardship and subdue it. God created man as male and female and commissioned them to enjoy sexual relations and the blessed fruit of such relations, which are children. Again, that doesn't mean everybody. Jesus wasn't married. It doesn't mean that it has to be. But in a general principle, that's the blessing that God's given. When the world promotes a homosexual agenda, when the world promotes abortion, for instance, Both of these ideas are the natural result of evolutionary philosophy which denies the existence of a Creator God who has ordered His world. It says we don't want God's order. God's order is not a demand to make our lives miserable. It's a blessing to make our lives fruitful. So there's the blessing of procreation and children, and then there's the blessing of stewardship. He says, subdue it. Middle of verse 28, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. These two words, subdue and rule, are very strong words. The Hebrew usually uses them of an advancing army who goes into a section and takes over a place. They subdue the enemy and they then rule over the enemy. So they're very strong words. In other words, there's to be strong leadership on the part of mankind over the animal world. With no apologies, with no negotiation, animals are to be submissive to man. And this stewardship assumes that man will learn what he can learn about the animal world and the world itself, and as he exercises faithful stewardship over that creation, he will fulfill his responsibility and his blessing. And it goes without saying that the kind of rule that man should give over the animals of the world is the kind of rule that God would give. It's not a a privilege to exploit our world. I remember a a documentary that was done uh, from a naturalist perspective of trying to make those who kill anything look bad, just to make it simple. But they had this this crusty, and I mean crusty as crusty could be, this crusty old fisherman standing on a shoreline with just piles of sea lions. And all around him, just piles of things that he had slaughtered. And you know, the guy had like about two teeth and and he just was the ugliest looking old guy. And he's standing there, you know, having killed all these things. He's gonna you know, just take a few of them, or whatever, but it's just a great loss of animal life. And he quotes this verse. (laughs) I say, oh great. He says, well you don't read your Bible, he says, that God says that that man's supposed to rule over the animals. We're supposed to rule with a brain. We're supposed to rule with kindness. We're supposed to rule with some compassion. We don't let the animals run our world, but we do deal with them with compassion and in a proper way. Not only is the animal world relegated to man's vice regency as God's image on earth, but notice verse 29, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit of seed in it, they will be yours for food. To all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. The food source for the inhabitants of earth is plants the vegetarian existence at this early stage of history no human no animal life is to be taken that privilege will be given in Genesis chapter 9 verse 3 but before the fall man and animal are vegetarians and it gives us again a perfect picture in sync with Romans 5:12 that before sin there's no death no animals die no people die did you hear it did you hear the word We're at day six, at the end of the day, and we are in a vegetarian world. How does that work with evolution? It can't. Once again, we see that you cannot hold the tenets of evolution and believe the Bible. We do not see a survival of the fittest situation, which animals are devouring one another, only the strongest surviving. I remember reading a theology book in seminary about a man who was influenced by the evolutionary thinking. It was he wrote about uh, maybe fifty, hundred years ago. But I'm reading it there about the love of God. Strong's theology. If anybody's ever read the thing, you need you need a, a, a you need a telescope. I mean, the thing is just tiny little print, big huge pages, and you just. You, I mean, it's great reading for before bed. But you're trying to stay awake and read. This Actually, is a great book, but it's really hard to read. And I'm reading about the love of God. And this guy's talking about how the love of God is shown in all the animals eating each other through millions of years of evolution. And this guy is a philosopher. I mean, he's a great intellect. And he's just going on and on and on. Why? Because he had to believe in evolution from his standpoint, from what he believed. And so he twists what the Bible says about the love of God about the deathless world, about a vegetarian world. And he says, a theologian who ought to know better, this all describes the love of God. Obviously, this is a very different world than ours. And it's a very different world than what the evolutionists would have us believe took place. It's impossible at this point, us to understand exactly how it worked. Did lions have fangs and claws? I don't know. Could they have eaten something else? Or did they just not have any interest in it? We don't know how this all works. It's a different world. But what I do know is it's not a myth. It's not a story. It's not something that couldn't be because the prophecies of Isaiah, who prophesied who Jesus would be, where he would be born what his mother would be like long before he was ever born. Perfect prophecies also prophesy prophesy in Isaiah chapter 11 this. The wolf, when Jesus reigns on earth, again in the millennium, he says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Here's the crowning phrase for me. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. I would love to go to the jungles of Africa and, and, and just experience it. But every time I think of it, I think, no, I couldn't live. I couldn't make it. You gotta really be, you gotta know what you're doing. You're gonna be lunch meat for somebody, frankly. It's gonna all end. It's gonna go back to where it started. A world where there's no death. A world where there's no danger but a world in which there are the very animals that we now see as predators. The world of Genesis 1, folks, is not the world of death and predatory anarchy. It's just not that world. For those Christian churches all around us in our own community, let alone in the broader world, broader culture, who insist that God got it started, but that it all evolved, they have got to do so by removing what the Bible says is true. There's no other way around. In verse 31, we read, and God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. Not death, not predatory anarchy, but rather good. Very good. And there was evening and morning, sixth day. At the end of this final day of God's creative genius, He finds that His work is very good. No death, no catastrophic violence in the earth's atm- atmosphere. Remember, it's protected by the canopy. There's no wind, there's no rain. There's no tornadoes, there's no hurricanes, nothing like that. There's no death, there's no violence, because there's no sin. Satan and man at this point remain unfallen, and so everything is very good. And there's evening and there's morning, day six. Now remember back to verse 14, just look back up there again. Remember that in verse 14, we see that the lights are put in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark what? Seasons and days and years. That's time like we know it, isn't it? Marked by the sun and the moon and the stars. Seasons, days, and years. So I've got decorations up here today, right? Season has been marked by the passing of time, watched by the rotation of the earth around the sun. That's established in verse 14. We come here to the end of it all, and what does he say? Evening and morning, day six. It's just another day. Creation is done. And we cannot miss that this sixth day is the pinnacle of God's creative work. Let me give you four reasons for that very quickly. Number one, he has said, as he looks at his world after each day, except for one, but after after each day, he says it's good. And this is the day when he creates space. Uh, but we won't get back into that. But he says it's very good. There's an emphasis on that word that you can't miss as you go through each day. It's very good. Reason number two why day six is emphasized and why the creation of man is emphasized and that is because day six is given more space than any other day in the text. Reason number three, because all of the other days in the Hebrew read a day one or a first day, a second day, a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day, the sixth day. We don't see that in English. Because it doesn't make sense so much to us in English. But in the Hebrew text, there's an article before the sixth day. So it's emphasized again. Reason number four, and that is the geocentricity of the entire chapter. Day one, time. Day two, space. Day three, mass. Specifically, earth. And we have two acts of creation. Day four, time. Day five, space. Day six, earth. And we have two acts of creation. The second being the longest of anything in the narrative. And so for this reason, I think it's obvious that man is the pinnacle of creation. God creates man in His own image and likeness, and there's nothing in all of creation that is anything like that. If we would think of God in all of His glory, could we not see Him say that He created the sun in His image to reflect His glory and His majesty, but He doesn't say that. He comes down to that little grain of sand at the bottom of the 20-foot pit, and he picks up that little grain of sand, and on that little grain of sand he makes a little man. And that is the focus of his creative week. And we find in it, we cannot miss in it, the dignity of man. That's my first point of two. The second point will be at a later time. <laughs> but my second point is the supremacy of God. I'll just give you that to chew on. The dignity of man is day six. Day seven, we see the supremacy of God. And we'll draw that out. But let me focus on this one theme just for a few moments, the dignity of man. Let me consider it in three ways. First of all, it's reach. The reach of the dignity of man would say this by principle, all people are created in the image of God and should be treated so. All people are created in the image of God and should be created thus. Sin has tainted the image of God in man, but I see nothing in Scripture that would say that it has been vanquished, that it's gone. God made us with a body. He made us to fulfill His will. And every human being lives in some sense as the image of God on earth. Jesus exemplified that true image of God as He came to earth, as He died and rose again, providing salvation, which leads to sanctification. And what is happening in our sanctification? We are being, Romans 8.29, conformed to the what of Christ. Conformed to the likeness. You see it? Through sin, we have fallen. Through sin, the image of God has been marred. But in salvation through Christ, we are being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We're going back to the image of God that was created in Adam. Progressively moving as believers, yet there is a sense in which all humanity continues to stay within the strictures of our kind that is, creation in the likeness of God. It means that we must, and I draw just a few applications, put human life before animal life. It means that we must treat all human life as precious and worthy of preservation. I, I, I just add this here. I don't know that that means that we do everything humanly possible to preserve life at all times. I don't think that it demands that, that, that we... Uh, spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to keep someone alive who's really dead and, and, and their body's gone, they can't live without a machine. I'm going to get into that, but we should preserve life. It doesn't mean that we always use all the money that we possibly can or that, that would be made available to us necessarily, but we preserve life. That's the principle. And in everything that we do, we see that we are preserving life. It means that we must not treat the poor or the infirm, or the deformed, or the troubled, or the handicapped as second-class citizens. It means that we will be racially colorblind. It means that we will relate with an even hand to men and women alike, to the young and the old, to the rich and the poor, to the weak and the strong. We're all made in the likeness of God. And the distinctions that we draw spit at the Creator and say, no, I'm better. The reach of the image of God is all inclusive. We are all made in the image and the likeness of God as human beings, whoever we are. Now, I know that that image is marred in some terribly, but they're still in the likeness of God. There's some people, it'd be very easy to just write off and take. I think of some even who send me letters along the line.